If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 12, and uh, we'll jump on in there in a moment. I don't know if you like me, but I spend quite a bit of time on the computer getting things ready, answering emails, doing research, and looking at ESPN. Um, but as you do that, more and more these days, right, you come up and uh, the one thing you're looking at is about a third of the screen, and the rest of the screen is filled with pop-ups and clickbait and all of these things. So what is clickbait? I mean, is it something that tries to draw your attention, right? A headline, a picture, a promise of something in order to get you to click on it and jump over to that website. Now, I love the, uh, the kids' uh, movies sometimes, and we watched Wreck-It Ralph 2. And uh, this one is about this they, little computer uh, video game guys. They get in and they get into the inner part of the World Wide Web. And uh, I thought, wow, this is actually a pretty good training tool for the kids because they're walking around, these little cartoon characters pop up and uh, try and get them, hey, touch me now, touch me now, it'll change your life. And uh, shows them how to uh, reject all of the clickbait that comes up. And uh, it can be rather dangerous to click on some of those things. It can lead to a virus or take you down a path that you don't want to be on. Um, or it can just uh, waste your time or be a headline that actually has nothing to do with the story uh, that you had. And as I thought about it, I thought clickbait is a lot about a lot like my favorite hobby. See, you're trying to get them to think, the fish to think, that that's a real fly. You want to get the fish to think it's real. And as soon as they come up and take it, if you set the hook, it's too late. They're on the hook. And we're going to see that this ties into some of the challenges that Jesus is facing. So I thought I'd give you this one here, just a little clickbait for you. See, the fish comes up to it, sees the hook. You'll never believe what happens. Must see. Wonder if he's going to click on it and take the bait. What's going to happen to him? Now, what if we were to go back, like maybe to the Old Testament? What it, what would have clickbait maybe look like if we're trying to get people to click on the Bible? So here's a few for you. See What this guy said he did in less than a week will make you question everything. Why did this man order 300 cubits of gopher wood? The reason will shock you. Uh, Israelites are halted at the Red Sea. You won't believe what happens next. Top 10 commandments. Number seven will blow your mind. And so, as you look at that, we think about this idea of clickbait. I thought, death, it's kind of like these pop-ups of people just coming around Jesus, and they're baiting him. They keep baiting him so they can get a headline to use against him. And today, we're going to go through uh, four different scenes of questions coming upon Jesus. And I want you to look at it as, is he going to take the bait? Because they're trying to set him up to discredit him and to uh, move him away from the people. And they don't care which section of people he gets moved away from. And so the first one uh, is in verse 13 of chapter 12. And it's really a political question. Um, And so now they're getting together and they sent to him two groups. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And so now they're making plans 
they know Jesus is going to be in the temple every day. Uh, the setting is the Passion Week right before he goes to the cross. And so now they're, they're making plans every day. We know he's going to be there. We know all the crowds are there. This is the best moment. Everybody's gathered there. They didn't have the World Wide Web, but this was the best opportunity because the people discredited Jesus and then went back to their homes from this uh, time of uh, celebration and remembrance. Then they could get him. And so they sent the Herodians and the Pharisees, and they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And so what we have going on here is this group of Herodians and Pharisees working together. Now, the interesting thing is that those two really wouldn't be seen together. And having taken in, I don't know, five to ten Marvel movies with our youth boys, our tradition, uh, you know, in Batman, which is not Marvel, but in Batman you always see that he's in real trouble when his enemies start to actually work together in order to get him. And so now we see two groups that usually don't work together coming before Jesus and trying to attack him. They were so upset with him, they were willing to combine forces and try to get him to pick one side or the other. And so uh, there were some Jewish people um, who were called zealots, and they flatly refused. They didn't want to pay the tax. They, they didn't want to admit that the Roman Empire had a right to rule them. They wanted to cling to their national power. Um, which was all gone. But they wanted to hold to that. And they, they were really the ones hoping, hey, if Jesus is the one, if he better be a political ruler and overthrow Rome. Now, the, the Pharisees disliked paying it, but they wouldn't oppose it publicly from what we understand because it would make them look bad. Whereas there's a group called the Herodians who had no objections to it at all. They're the ones who kind of cozied up to the Roman rule and got comfortable with it and also saw some of the benefits of Rome that perhaps were against the way God wanted them to live. Uh, they were compromising in their, face, uh, in their faith. And so they banded together and they approached Jesus. And uh, they approached him with this bait. Are you going to prioritize politics over the gospel? And the gospel is the mission he came to live out. Is he going to pick sides? Because if they could get him to pick sides, what do you do immediately? We know that. If you pick sides, boom. Oh, good, we got these people turned against him. That's one group. Whichever side he picked, they thought there's no way. He's got to answer this question. Whichever way he goes, we're going to turn it against him. And they were fine. They didn't care what his answer was because they thought they had set him up. We're going to trap him. If he says it's, it's God that you give to and you don't worship Rome, you don't give them money, then boom, we can tell him he's trying to be a, a revolter against Rome. And if, if he says, if he goes on the other way, then uh, they could turn it and say he's a friend of Rome and not of the Jewish people. He approves of them. And 
They're trying to trap him in the midst of this. And in the midst of this, he answers with a simple statement. <laughs> and he diffuses their whole argument. Just picks up a coin and says, whose inscription is, is that? Oh, okay. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And what he's doing here, he's not uh, setting up all of God's uh, doctrine of government. <laughs> he's not addressing everything. He's definitely not approving of Rome and all of their methods or of the emperor or of Caesar and what he is doing. He's simply hitting on one issue. And within that, he is giving us a principle that's echoed with, with in the whole of Scripture. Um, you see, we understand that um, God is the one who places rulers in authority. We believe that. Uh, that was taught both in the Old Testament and the New, that God is in control of who is in charge. And so he's beginning to help them to understand that. But then he says, give to God's what is God's. If you follow Jesus around, what is God's? Well, God owns everything. Give yourself to the Lord wholly. Give everything to the Lord. Give to the Lord what is yours. Give your heart to the Lord is what he's telling them. To follow Jesus is a life of total surrender. And many would leave him because they didn't want to do that. They wanted to cling to their vocation, their possessions, their finances. And in a few weeks, Jesus is actually going to talk on this further, what it means to give total surrender. But the truth of the matter is that you need to give yourself wholly to God and honor authority. And he's saying, you know what, this is the government ruling over you. And those taxes may not always be fair. The, the local taxpayers may add on to them, but at the heart of it, paying a tax to Caesar there, the one that they were having to pay there in Jerusalem, was set up by the governing authority, and you needed to honor that. Because God is the one who allowed them to be in power. And, and so as he does that, he challenges them. And it's says echoed throughout the New Testament. Uh, followers of Jesus are called to submit to those in authority. Now we also understand that submitting to those in authority does not mean that you submit to the point of choosing to sin. <laughs> and, um, and, and there's a lot of other passage, but passages that go into detail on that. But we are also called to pray for those in leadership in our government. So there should be a heart of honoring authority where we can. And that's what he's encouraging them to do here with a simple response. But he's also getting back to the heart of their issue, which is giving yourself wholly to the authority of God. And not just worrying about a small little tax such as that. Now he moves on here and we have another confrontation. And... Uh, Actually, two more confrontations I, I, I want to highlight here. And uh, if we look at this, uh, the Sadducees come up to him and say to him this. Now, before I read this, the Sadducees are a group that uh, are unique in their beliefs and what they'd come to teach. They had a real problem with the idea of the resurrection. They felt, you know what, it's just not clear enough for us in the Old Testament uh, we don't believe that that happens. In fact, um, they also uh, had this idea that they were in, mainly located in Jerusalem. Uh, they were the ones who catered to the rich, uh, to those who were higher up in power, and they loved that position, and they took advantage of it. And so really at the core of their teaching, as we're going to see, 
is that they didn't believe in spirits or in angels or, or the resurrection. And so that left them with really their practical theology was live your best life now. And so they came to him and uh, they said this. Uh, the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, they asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her, left no offspring. The third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Oh, they've got him here, right, with their clever twist of words. Jesus says, Is this not the reason you are wrong? <laughs> you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they are neither, mar- neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as far as the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So this is the first time in Mark that we encounter the Sadducees. And actually, when the temple gets destroyed historically in AD 70, we don't read of them anymore. Um, So they don't last long on the scene with their doctrine and Jesus shuts it down as well. Uh, and he just simply looks at them and, and he says, you don't understand the scriptures <laughs> and you're missing out. When we don't understand the scriptures, we miss out on the power of God. The two are connected. You cannot separate them. There are some who pursue the power of God at the cost of the scriptures and end up leading down a path that's far from the gospel. And there are others who pursue the scriptures but deny or, or, or practically deny the power of God, ends up lifeless and transformationless and can end up in, in a form of legalism. And so, to clarifying the point here, uh, he declares, you know what, you underestimate God's power. <laughs> and uh, by this point, he'd already raised a man from the dead, Lazarus, and and. They're looking at him and making this question and denying the resurrection itself, and he's getting ready to himself be raised from the grave. And so, to clarify the point he's making here, it can seem a little confusing at first, but simply he's saying, whenever now the book of Moses, whenever it was written, and, and God spoke the very words of God, God spoke as if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alive, because they are alive. Their souls are alive. They're living. And so he's saying, how can you speak of and teach? And we always, they always taught and thought of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense. And if God was pointing to them and these promises unfulfilled and they were dead, then why are, why are you trusting in God if you die and that's it? What good are the promises? You might as well just enjoy your life right now. You might as well just go for it right now. You might as well just think that this life is as good as it gets. If there's nothing afterwards, there's no resurrection, um, then what is the point? The very core of this covenant between God and these leaders in the nation was the power of God to keep his promises with them. 
And so if they were all dead and never to be raised again, the Sadducees were probably making the right choice of enjoying this life as they could. Um, you know, this bait is all around us today. <laughs> it's the idea of just pulling out a verse and taking it out of context and claiming promises that maybe we are abusing for our own personal preferences. It's um, clicking on those things of picking sides or, or supporting a viewpoint and leaving out the love behind it. It's, it's the idea that, you know what, Jesus is really only interested in you here and now and we forget that we're created for eternity and our here and now is meant to be for his kingdom. And so the truth of the matter is that, that our hope is eternal. <laughs> our hope is eternal. Our life is eternal. So we are to have a long-term view of things, not just the immediate, not just the moment. And if we get caught up in the moment and we try to make everything about us as if we're the central characters of every story and every moment in history, me, 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 then we miss out on the scriptures and we miss out on the power of God. It's the scriptures that work in our lives. When we rightly handle the word of God, the Holy Spirit works in us and working together, that's when we are transformed. It's when we, we begin to understand and, and become more and more like Christ himself. And so Jesus wasn't messing around. He wasn't going to put up with scripture being twisted especially the key foundational understanding of the resurrection. Uh, he didn't want that foundation to be uh, seep in, that clickbait to seep into those crowds because uh, he was hoping that as the church was established, they'd be able to grasp the power of the resurrection. And so we have two more confrontations here, and we'll tie them all together. Um, starting in verse 28, it says, One of the scribes came up, and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that, he answered them well, and asked him, which of the commandments is most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one, one's neighbors oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw, he answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So what does Jesus do? He turns the table. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said and asked the question, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. David said, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And a great thong, throng heard them gladly. And so, I want to address that last one first, and then I think this interaction with the scribe ties them all together. The last one's uh, pretty uh, straightforward, and that is, the bait is, 
earthly king and earthly kingdom. A beloved son with a heavenly mission is the truth. So what he's saying is, you're looking for a son of David in that lineage of David, a person, a king. But he's saying, that son of David is the Lord. He is holy. He is God. The Lord said to my Lord, uh, capital L there, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David calls himself Lord. So how is he his son? He's trying to get them to release this idea of that political and earthly kingdom and realize that he is God's son coming in authority in the line of David to establish a heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom. It's going to be quite different than their expectations of the kingdom. He's a beloved son with a heavenly mission. And that's why he's trying to establish and get his disciples to understand and implement. Now, the pivotal scene in this passage really is this. Jesus is approached here in verse 28 by a scribe, but the scribe isn't coming up to trap him. It's probably one of the first genuine questions he's had in quite a while. It seems a a rather sincere question of which of the commandments is most important of all. Now, this passage caught my heart and my mind this week, and you'll see why in a moment. And yet, uh, the scribe is really ahead of its time. For us, we can miss it. Because uh, we can miss that he was one of the first that we see in the scriptures really acknowledging outside of Jesus and agreeing that love of God and love of neighbor are connected and that they are greater than all the sacrifices. Now, this is something Jesus had taught, but for for this scribe to understand that, uh, he was not in line with the common thinking of that day. The rabbis uh, had counted 613 individual statutes in the law. 365 were negative, 248 were positive commands. And the scribe would have had to write them down, record them. Um, They had a differentiation between the the great or the heavier laws that were harder or more deep and the ones that were light or or more little, uh, little things. Maybe we would say smaller sins, (laughs) less important ones. Um, they made attempts to, to take these and formulate great principles around them so that people could understand and follow them. And yet here he is able to look at this and grasp and say, you know what? You need to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. Because if your heart is right, that's greater. The sacrifices were always meant to draw their hearts to God. And so he's beginning to understand that. Those passages, that even though it was stated in the Old Testament where God said, I I don't desire your sacrifices. I desire your hearts. If your hearts aren't with me, your sacrifices are, are, are rubbish. You see, only in Mark and in the, all of the Gospels does he include here that, that quote from uh, Deuteronomy. And the relationship is uh, important because God is to be loved completely and totally. That's how it connects with that first statement. We're to give to God with his gods. We're to love him with everything that we have. He is God alone. He is the one God. He has made the covenant of love with his people. And if we love him totally, 
and give ourselves totally to him, we're to love our neighbor. And so, as he begins to get this and begins to wrestle with this, you're like, he's got it. A plus. First response that Jesus isn't like, boom, I'll stump you. Boom, I'll shoot you down. You don't get the authority. You don't get the scriptures. No. What does he say? You are not far from the kingdom of God. I read that for years and years, and we've seen it many times. And, you know, it sounds so positive. But guess what? You are not far from the kingdom of God. He's still not there yet. That bothered me. (laughs) That bothers me. It's like, why not? Why is he declared not far from the kingdom of God instead of in it? He lacked one thing, but what did he lack? It reminds me of earlier, a, a rich young ruler came to Jesus and he stated all these things. Jesus said, you are right. And he's like, I've kept all the commandments. And he's like, great. One thing you lack. Sell all your possessions and follow me. And that guy walked away sad. He left the kingdom and he left Jesus. You see, the bait here is this statement. All you need is love. (laughs) The bait is, are we just going to reduce God to love? And this struck home with me, and it's been something I have been wrestling with because it is like fly fishing. It is the perfect fly. (laughs) It's that best drift, the most accurate cast. The fish approaches it and takes the bait and realizes it's not real. See, the thing about fly fishing is, you see how small that is? And I use even smaller flies. The tiniest fly, less than my fingernail, catches the bigger fish in Colorado. The smaller, the more deceptive and tiny the bait, the more you can get them trapped and hooked and pull them out of the water. And so, with this bait, all you need is love. It becomes something that is the most dangerous thing that this generation is going to face. And it's something that has disturbed me. And I've got to be honest with you this morning, what I'm trying to share and work through, I've been wrestling with God, looking and trying to understand what's going on in our culture. And uh, it's hard. I'm still wrestling through it and preparing for even looking ahead to a series in 2020, trying to figure out what is it? What is it that uh, causes young people to walk away from the church? What is it that when you open up and you read this week, and many of you probably haven't walked with this guy or seen him, some of you may have, but Joshua Harris, uh, he was part of a young reformed movement and uh, wrote several books on dating that became super popular. Um, And so, He came out and divorced his wife and then a week later said, you know what, I've looked at it all and I need to be honest. You need to know I'm leaving Jesus behind. I'm walking away from him. Um, And the headlines were everywhere. You might have seen it. CNN carried it. Fox News carried it. The AP did. That's where I saw it on their blogs, Facebook posts, tweets, Instagram. Everywhere was talking about the recension of this famous pastor who wrote books 
And for me, we were at a couple's retreat this week. I was talking with some of the other pastors. And I was like, guys, that is scary news. (laughs) We need to protect ourselves. But how, the question becomes, how do you end up there? How do you end up there when you're so close to the truth all along? How can you end up as being not far from the kingdom of God, but not in it and walking away from it? And so as, as I looked at that, I was like, man, this is devastating. It can be devastating if you've had a friend walk away from the faith uh, to see families destroyed by this. Why, why was this man not far from God? Why did the rich young ruler turn away? See, all you need is love is the call of our culture. And so translating that, that means that Jesus is love. God is love. But what is love? For a while, love was was defined, you know, you fall in love with somebody and romantic love gets highly posterized. But now, then it turned into, you know, love is accepting one another and tolerating the different paths we choose to go morally. But now we're seeing a shift, whereas you don't just tolerate me, but if you don't agree with what I'm doing, it's impossible for you to say you love me. So we can't say, I, I love you as a person, I, I just don't agree with that choice you're making, politically or morally. And it's becoming a, a culture that says, no, that's not love. Love says you must not only say you love me, but agree and fully support everything I do. That's what love is. That's the definition that we are trying to live by, and yet we haven't thought through the full implication of it. If we think love is affirming every choice a person makes, I don't think I could parent that way and have my kids live past the age of 10. (laughs) Past the age of (laughs) 5. Past the age of 2. No. (laughs) Right? We know that's not it, but, but that's what is being taught and projected between people, and yet it's a worldview that cannot sustain itself. It contradicts itself, and yet we begin to support it, and we believe that's the answer. Think of it in clickbait terms. Uh, I believe in the God of love, and Jesus was love. He hung out with prostitutes and sinners, so don't judge me, because de- Jesus doesn't judge me. That's the headline. Jesus doesn't judge you. I've got a friend, a former pastor, says, I left my wife and you know what I discovered? All those sins that I thought were horrible and going to tear me apart, I enjoy them. So the Bible must be wrong. Well, the Bible never says you're not going to enjoy them. Your best life now just means, yeah, that's all the enjoyment you're ever going to have. But at the end of the road, there's still an emptiness. There's still something. There's a void in our lives, in our hearts, if we admit it. That's why you see those who live it up the most end up alone and afraid and thinking their life is worthless. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And the more you try, the more it doesn't really answer that deepest need within you. The need to be loved. Because you pursue all these things, these changes and these choices, and yet you end up feeling unloved. And, and I know I've talked to people in that state. I've seen it. So what's the issue? What is the turning point? What's at stake? Well, and what's missing in the scribe's response? What's the linchpin that you need to hold on to to keep your faith? What's the key? 
from straying from Jesus. Well, I've been wrestling this, this, and I think one of the best responses to Josh Harris's departure, this pastor's departure, came from his friends Kevin DeYoung and a couple other guys, that, Colin Hansen, that wrote a book together, and they all were this group, and they said, well, the answer is that we're not going to write about it publicly because the truth is there's probably a journey he went through personally a little small steps away that ended up into this big point. And they said, we've talked to him, we've let him know our heart breaks for him, and whether he agrees with it or not, that we still love him. And rather than dissect him on the media and online, we will try to reach out to him as friends. I thought that was a great response, pointing to us to remember that anybody who walks away, you can express your sadness, but loving your neighbor means keep pursuing them and loving them if they allow you to. It might just mean praying for them. But see, the, the, the subtle shifts away are those tiny little flies that trick you, the little clickbait that takes you, and then uh, two hours later, you haven't gotten any work done. And any of you who shoot or do archery or know anything about aiming at a target, you aim at it, you're one centimeter off, while the further away you get from it, one centimeter takes you way off course over time, doesn't it? One shift in doctrine, one shift away from the gospel over time is going to end you up at a place way over here. And so there's some foundational linchpins that we must hold on to. And the bigger issue, the issue that we've been wrestling with for two chapters now, if you've been here, the issue that's coming up over and over again is, what authority do you have, Jesus What right do you have to do anything in this temple? What right do you have to interpret the scriptures? What right do you have to tell me how to live my life? If we divorce God's authority from his love and just say he accepts everything, then we miss out on who God is and why Jesus had to come. If if God has no holiness in him and he just accepts everything, then why on earth would we have a cross? What a waste. What a waste. Jesus would die for nothing, but he died so that we could have a relationship with God because God is not just love. God is 100% love, 100% truth, 100% just, 100% wrathful against sin, 100% gracious. All of these things are God. And God has the authority because he created this world. And we may not always understand why some things are allowed and some aren't, and why he structured the family and the home and the world the way he did. Ravi Zacharias, one of the best apologists of our time, uh, on his ministry website, one of their posts says, The rules and statutes implemented into the life of Israel originally came from the desire to know and love the Lord. Rules were not put into place to prevent desire from finding its fulfillment. Rather, the rules were put in place to fulfill desire and avoid detriment. So the question is, once again, what does uh, authority does the word of God have? The rich young ruler so valued his life and his possessions that he could not give himself fully to the Lord. That was his roadblock. He couldn't give the Lord authority over his possessions. 
The, the man intellectually made connections here, the scribe. He intellectually understood um, what it was to, to love the Lord. and That was more than sacrifices. But what was he missing? The Messiah was standing right in front of him. The people who cried out to Jesus to heal him and said, Jesus, Lord, Son of God, Messiah. They called out, Son of David. Those are the ones who acknowledged, Jesus, you are the Messiah. He said, your faith has saved you. You were healed. Or you are healed, go and sin no more. He didn't just leave them there healed and say, hey, go live your life up. I've got you back on track. You can see now. He said, no. Go tell people what I've done for you. Go. Don't sin anymore. Get out of that, that life where you have uh, several men that you are with, and the man you're with now actually isn't your husband. He always hung out with sinners and loved them. But he addressed the heart issue and their physical issues as well. The gospel always calls us to respond to God's love. And it's not a life of duty that we're called to. It's a life of overflowing love and gratitude for the death and resurrection of Jesus. The rules, the roles, the structure of our world is designed for our flourishing. And and flourishing means our flourishing in our relationship with God, not having the absolute perfect marriage, perfect home, always on the uptick in our finances. See, when we associate it with that, then God doesn't make sense at all because we know that the suffering we go through reflects Christ. And he's building us for an eternal home, an eternal reward, shaping us through the struggles that he said we should expect. And yet all of that is worth it and it fulfills our deepest needs and desires and gives us that idea of joy even when we shouldn't have it. That idea of peace when we shouldn't have it. You see, the original clickbait was what? Hey, take this apple and you can be in charge of yourself. God's holding back from you and it hasn't changed since. All of these things that try and pull people away and to say, well, I can't follow Jesus if he says this because our culture says we've got to accept everything. Well, does Jesus have the authority or not? If we're eternal and God is holy, then yeah, it may be enjoyable for a time, but that's the peak. But he designed us for so much more than just pursuing whatever seems right to ourselves. And so instead of love is all we need, it's the gospel's love that is all we need. And the gospel's love says this. Love, by definition, is exclusive, right? Choosing to love someone, choosing to love, and it's directed at someone or something. But the greatest love of all is not without truth or judgment. The greatest love of all is when God looks at you and says, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've sinned, no matter how much you're going to sin, I love you and I sent my son for you. Unconditionally, by grace, we are saved. He offers his son to us when we didn't deserve it. That is love. A love that looks and says, everything you're doing makes it impossible for a perfect God to relate to you. So I'm going to fix that. And I'm going to help you be changed moment by moment. In Jesus' most profound moments with society's most unclean people, he met them with 100% grace and love and 100% truth. Warning them of a judgment that is yet to come. You see, this idea of love and twisting Jesus and saying there's no, there's no hell, there's no 
it, it just, everything's going to work out in the end. It sounds oh so close to the kingdom of God, but to be close is not to be there. Don't let go of the authority of God and trusting, even when it, it's hard and it doesn't make sense and people you love are rejecting him and you're like, but they're such nice people. Why, why would God judge them? Well, I think we need to look at ourselves and say, are, am I really a nice guy compared to the holiness of God? Or is love pictured in the essence of the cost paid for our sins, the cost that Jesus gave? See, we've covered a lot of uh, issues today and a lot of ground um, about governance and living for the moment and love and the mission of Jesus. That's a reminder in our weekly meeting with Dan of this passage. Uh, in Revelation, um, John, the closest disciple to Jesus, was given this picture of the future and this uh, words from Jesus to the churches. And he says to one church, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so it's that doing the work of remembering that love when we first grasp the gospel, that love of Jesus Christ. One paraphrase says it this way. But you walked away from your first love. Why? What's going on with you anyway? Do you have any idea how far you've fallen? Turn back. Recover your dear early love. No time to waste. I'm well on my way to removing your light from the golden circle. But we need to keep that first love, that love, that understanding, that love that came right in line with our repentance and calling out for a Savior and calling out in hope. So we need to resolve to pursue Jesus with all your heart, love him, overflow with love for him and gratitude for what he's done. With all, all your soul, know that you're eternal. With all your mind, don't be afraid of the scriptures. We're not afraid of them. There's tough stuff in there. It's hard to understand some of the commands and teachings and we got to wrestle with them. It's okay to ask questions or say, I don't know if I agree with that yet. I need to dig into that. Is that really what it says? We want to do that here. And then with all your strength, it takes strength daily to get up and obey and pursue and to follow Jesus, doesn't it? Daily, we've got to pick up our cross and follow him. And it's going to take more and more strength. As more and more people push against it and say, it's impossible for you to love me. You don't agree with me. I'm like, well, no, I do. And then I'm going to have to show that I do by the way I treat others. Reflect how God treated others and yet never let go of the truth. It's going to be an ongoing challenge, an ongoing conversation that we have. And yet it's that first love. We want to fight for it. We want to pursue it. And we want to cling to it. That's the linchpin. It's God's authority. Well, you call Jesus Lord and submit and say, Lord, I don't get this. Help me understand it. But in the midst of it, keep that humility that he gave everything for you. And he's the one that not just defined love, but showed us love in sending his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it um, always shakes our footing a little bit, Lord, when we see people who we 
thought were in love uh, turn away from you and 